Hello! Welcome to the reading of the Sioux City Journal for Tuesday, January 17th. I'm Dagna, your reader today. The, today's mini-editorial is written by the Journal Editorial Board, and they write, Ask yourself, what did I do Monday to commemorate the legacy of Martin Luther King, Jr.? And now for the Siouxland five-day weather forecast. Today will be breezy in the morning and it will be cloudy throughout the day with a high of 31 and a low of 26. Wednesday will have snow which will become heavy and with a possible 4 to 8 inches with a high of 32 and a low of 23. Thursday is breezy in the morning with flurries with a high of 27 and a low of 11. Friday will have clouds with a high of 27 and a low of 16. And Saturday will be brilliant sunshine with a high of 34 and a low of 12. And the top story for today is community comes together to celebrate Dr. King's legacy. Siouxlanders packed a church on Sioux City's north side Monday to celebrate the life and legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. The theme of King's annual birthday celebration, which was sponsored by the local chapter of the NAACP, was This is Power, Our Collective Voice. The event featured local speakers as well as the all-community MLK Day Choir under the direction of Sandra Pearson. The choir was made up of singers from a number of local churches as well as people who simply wanted to participate. Dr. Albert Mosley, Morningside University's first-ever black president, said in his keynote address that there is still much unfinished business when it comes to civil rights. He said matters which were thought to have been decided are now being retried in this country. Mosley cited barriers that many states have placed in front of the ballot box, including imposing strict voter ID laws, cutting voting times, restricting registration, and purging voter rolls. He said these special burdens have been placed on racial minorities as well as the young and the old. In addition to the renewed assault on voting rights here in our country, there are countless flashpoints around the globe that should cause each of us to seriously ponder Dr. King's question of, where do we go from here, Mosley said. Sioux City Community School District Board member Monique Scarlett told those gathered at First Congregational United Church of Christ that she is concerned about our future and our collective voices. She said the world we live in today is not the same as it was a decade ago. Our world has regressed or even relaxed when it comes to the guarantee of equality and justice for all. We applaud the steps that Dr. King literally gave his life for, yet we oftentimes need to demand what Dr. King marched for, said Scarlett, who said that in 2023 the same opportunity to succeed does not exist for everyone. Scarlett said civil rights began because black folks were frustrated and tired of being mistreated and disrespected on every level. We all in here can initiate, educate, and create foundations that are solid and stable. By doing this, it provides numerous avenues of engagement, which confront ongoing battles of discrimination that some of us face or witness on a daily basis, she said. We must continue to help and not hinder the movement. Scarlett encouraged those present to call discrimination out when they witness it. Call that for what it is. No longer we can continue to excuse the brutal behavior of racism, discrimination, and divisive agenda, she said. The only way to protect our civil rights is to do what is right. Dr. King said the time is always right to do what is right. 
Mosley noted that King's Poor People's Campaign brought to the forefront some of the nation's ugliest and best-kept secrets about the working poor. A generation or two later, he said the spirit of that campaign led to a massive and significant increase in the U.S. middle class. He said access to decent housing, better pay, and viable education opportunities have allowed millions of working class families to traverse class lines. The poor of every hue and skin color who gathered in Washington, D.C. on May 12, 1968 to demand massive change could have never predicted the vast alteration of the American socioeconomic landscape that we have witnessed. Even with all of this, all is still not well, Mosley said. Like Dr. King, we find ourselves in the position of simultaneously reviewing and analyzing progress while expressing cautious enthusiasm about the future. Over the past few years, Mosley said the world has become irrevocably changed and dramatically altered by COVID-19. While everyone has been impacted by the virus, he said COVID-19 has not impacted everyone equally. A disproportionate number of heartache and suffering has been felt in African American and Hispanic communities, with an overwhelming number of deaths being reported among those two groups. These statistics, while distressing, were entirely predictable. For far too long, health inequities have persisted and undermined the fabric of society. Mosley said the question, where do we go from here, presents us each with opportunities to try to make things better. What was left undone yesterday, the unfinished agenda items of race, poverty, persecution, and discrimination because of sexual orientation, and so many more, these unfended Unfinished agenda items are waiting for each of us to pick them up and to turn from our sense of neglect and dishonesty to prayerfully move towards reconciliation, he said. Kaufman elected to another term as state GOP chair. The man who has overseen wild success for Iowa Republican candidates and the preservation of Iowa Republicans' first-in-the-nation presidential caucus status has been elected to lead the state party for another two years. Jeff Kaufman was unanimously re-elected Saturday as chair of the Republican Party of Iowa. Kaufman, a community college history professor from Wilton, was given the vote of confidence by the party's state central committee. It will be his fifth term. Since 2015, when Kaufman was elected to his first term, Iowa's congressional delegation has gone from split to entirely Republican, and the state government has gone from split control to all Republican control. And in 2024, Iowa Republicans once again will start the National Party's presidential nominating process with the Iowa caucuses. The Iowa Democrats were stripped of their first-in-the-nation status last year. Over the past eight years, Iowa Republicans have achieved spectacular victories for the people of this great state, Kaufman said in a statement. I am honored to remain at the helm of this great organization and see our party through another first-in-the-nation caucus and ultimately victory again in 2024. Linda Uppmeyer, a former Iowa House Speaker from Clear Lake, was unanimously re-elected as the state party's co-chair. Iowa Republicans target education with bills on private schools' gender identity. No instruction on gender identity or sexuality for young students. Mandatory parental consent if a child asked to be identified by different pronouns in school.
taxpayer funds to send kids to a private school that conforms to their faith and moral convictions. Iowa Republicans have launched the 2023 legislative session with ambitious and far-reaching bills aimed at overhauling the state's educational system, with a focus on giving parents more control over what and how their children are taught at school. Early attention has focused on Governor Kim Reynolds' plan to allow all Iowa students to have access to taxpayer-funded scholarships to pay for private schools, a proposal that will have an estimated $341 million price tag when fully phased in, her office says. Iowa lawmakers have released a flurry of bills of their own, including several that revolve around LGBTQ students or controversial curricula such as critical race theory. One per proposal, which mirrors don't say gay legislation from other states, would prohibit any lessons on gender identity or sexual orientation until a student is in fourth grade. Another bill would require schools to notify parents and obtain their consent before accommodating a transgender student. House Republicans are also proposing bills to give parents more insight and information about what's taught in their child's classroom. Representative Skyler Wheeler, chair of the House Education Committee, said a Republican's main goal is getting parents back in charge of their kids' education and bringing as much transparency to that as we can. Democrats, including House Minority Leader Jennifer Confirst of Windsor Heights, say the bills relating to LGBTQ students are part of a national trend in GOP-led states around the country. This is part of a continued, sustained, and nonstop attack on public school kids, she said. This is a continuation of House Republican and the majority party's dedication to dividing us, to bringing culture war issues to the classrooms, and to follow, following a national playbook. Iowa lawmakers are just one week into the 2023 legislative session, so few of their proposals have begun the process to passage. But with Republicans controlling both legislative chambers and the governor's office, the priorities of GOP leadership are an early signal of which measures may have the support to become law. LGBTQ advocacy groups quickly condemned two proposals that House Republicans described as priorities for the legislative session. House File 8, which would prohibit schools from teaching about gender identity or sexual orientation in kindergarten through third grade. It's similar to a controversial Florida law that critics dubbed the Don't Say Gay Bill. We just want to protect these kids, said Wheeler, or Republican from Orange City. We want to give them their innocence as long as we can. The Florida law states that parents may sue their school district if it does not comply. Wheeler's bill does not outline specific penalties. Iowa Republicans also introduced House File 9, which would prohibit schools from withholding information from parents if a student is transgender. Schools would also require parental consent before using new pronouns for a transgender student. Keenan Crow, Director of Policy and Advocacy for the LGBTQ Organization One Iowa, called the House's package of priorities the Big Brother Bills. It really is all about censorship and surveillance, Crow said. That's the global idea here. And so while we have all these requirements, restrictions, and surveillance tools that we're putting in place for public schools, I will also note that all non-public schools are exempted from all of these things. 
Republicans have pointed to the Linmar School District 1, explaining the legislation. The district adopted a policy that allowed transgender students in 7th grade and above to request a different name or different pronouns be used for them at school, giving the students' wishes priority over their parents. Republicans, like Reynolds, have criticized the policy, while Linmar has said the practice aligns with state and federal civil rights laws. What we are discussing right now is the epidemic that's going on with our youth as far as the increased numbers of transgender youth, said Wheeler, who led the passage of last year's law prohibiting transgender girls and women from competing in girls' sports. Damian Thompson, a lobbyist for Iowa Safe Schools, said a new Trevor Project survey shows LGBTQ youth in Iowa feel less safe than those in other states, and House Republican bills could actively put LGBTQ lives at risk. Whether it's a bill that refuses to acknowledge that LGBTQ folks exist in the classroom or legislation which would quite literally put transgender youth in direct danger by outing them to their parents, we're very concerned and are going to be working extremely diligently to make sure that none of these bills see the governor's desk, Thompson said. When asked about the safety concerns of outing transgender kids to unsupportive parents, Wheeler said the government's interest is ensuring the parents know what in the world's going on with their kid. I tend to err on the side of parents love their kids, Wheeler said. So if a parent doesn't agree necessarily with their kid's choice, I think it's extreme to say, well, we're going to kick a nine-year-old to the curb. I think that's extreme. House Republicans also introduced legislation to require teachers to post their syllabi and instructional content online and to standardize how community members can request the removal of a school library book. The requirements would apply to public and charter schools in Iowa. The public interest in Reynolds' plan to have taxpayers fund students who want to go to private school has already been intense. On Thursday afternoon, two long lines of parents, educators, and lobbyists spilled out into the Capitol hallways as the Senate held its first hearing on Reynolds' private school scholarships proposal. Supporters and opponents of the proposal took turns at a microphone in a crowded room arguing about whether taxpayer dollars should be used for private school tuition. Reynolds has touted her plan as a way to allow families to seek a new school that may fit a child's academic and social needs, or a school that better matches the family values. Some families may want an education that conforms to their faith and moral convictions. Some kids may have ambitions and abilities that require a unique educational setting. Others may experience bullying or have special needs, Reynolds said in her condition of the state address. Reynolds staff estimates the total cost of the program in its fourth year, once it's fully phased in, would be about $341 million annually. Confirst argues that putting so much state money toward private schools will leave less to increase funding for public school students. We're supposed to be an education first state, and the governor is taking $340 million off the top before we even get to fund public schools, she said. That's still coming from public schools. Opponents also argue that private schools may reject students, including those with disabilities. This isn't parent choice or student choice, said Emily Piper, lobbyist for the Iowa Association of School Boards. This is school choice because the private school can decide whether they accept you or not. A public school must accept every student who enrolls, regardless of the circumstances of that student. Smaller versions of Reynolds' proposal have failed to pass in the Iowa House for the past two years, as enough Republicans joined Democrats in opposition out of concern that the bill would harm public schools, especially in rural areas, by siphoning the enrollment and funding. 
But House Speaker Pat Grassley, Republican New Hartford, said that has said the issue is a priority this year. The Iowa Senate, meanwhile, has passed both of Reynolds' previous bills setting up private school scholarships. Senator Ken Rosenboom, Republican Oskaloosa, who chairs the Senate Education Committee, called Reynolds' latest proposal a transformative change. It's been a priority for several of my colleagues in the Iowa Senate for many years, actually, he said, and so it shouldn't be a surprise that it's going to be front and center in our work this year. We now have a story about um, an Iowa influencer who is finding a way to tell the story of Iowa through social media. Meet vegan influencer Jackie Ackerberg, whose cookbook comes out soon. Des Moines-based vegan influencer Jackie Ackerberg has no beef. For the 31-year-old metro area native, that means no meat from animals and no negativity, on her positivity peppered Instagram page, Jackfruitful Kitchen. The Valley High School alum, who now boasts nearly 90,000 followers on Instagram, catapulted to internet fame in 2020 with her creative, colorful take on vegan recipes. Now, ahead of the January 17th release of the Clean Vegan Cookbook, the JackFruitful.com creator is dishing about the journey that brought her a slice of food blogging success. Ackerberg was born Jackie Bassman to Bob and Diane Bassman, a local couple who co-owned Bassman Vending, a corporate catering and vending company. During Ackerberg's childhood, she stocked vending machines and prepped catered food made from scratch at their company. Ackerberg spent hours in the kitchen in the company's warehouse alongside Diane, who was famous for homemade chocolate chip cookies, as her mother prepped menu items. With family at home or in the warehouse, Ackerberg first gained an awareness for cultivating creative recipes, she said. The family of three ate homemade meals each day for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Breakfast at the Bassman House was a sit-down event, and they would regularly share large dinners with homemade Italian pasta sauce, fresh pizza dough, salads, dressings, sauces, and various desserts. For most of her life, Ackerberg identified as a pescatarian because she would occasionally consume salmon and eggs. Her dad would cook steaks and other meats and would say about each new meat dish he cooked, This new version is going to be the one that changes your mind, Ackerberg said, but they never interested her palate. Ackerberg graduated from Valley High School in 2009 and attended Aveda Institute Des Moines to receive a cosmetology license in 2012. She worked as a colorist at Salon Spa W in the East Village, where she met her husband Clinton before starting her blog jackfruitful.com in 2019. That year, Ackerberg also fully became a vegan and began posting on her blog original plant-based recipes produced with whole foods. In March 2020, her Instagram account had only about 1,000 followers. By July 2021, her following had increased to 10,000, and as of January 12th, the account has nearly 90,000. I used to post a picture with a recipe every day, and people kept telling me that I needed to show my face, Ackerberg said. It was actually when I started sharing a lot more of me and being more personable that people connected with my account more. Ackerberg is known on Instagram for preppy peppy dancing and videos while holding up whole food ingredients and introducing followers to plant-based recipes featuring a rainbow array of colors. Ackerberg posted a cranberry beet salsa appetizer featuring finely chopped red onions and cranberries with a whole lime and salt alongside other ingredients 
ingredients around Thanksgiving in 2022 and earned nearly 130,000 Instagram views. A Labor Day dish called the Sesame Cabbage Crunch Salad with Napa cabbage, chopped broccoli, and homemade sesame dressing racked up 1 million views on the social sharing platform. Another popular post includes Ackerberg's signature guacamole with hints of lime and sprinkled salt paired with restaurant-style salsa that uses tomatoes, crushed red peppers, red onion, and other ingredients. Ackerberg works full-time as an operations manager at the Wealth Consulting Group with Clinton, her husband and managing partner. She also runs the Compost Ingersoll Avenue co-working space Collaborate DSM and oversees the family's rental properties. On January 17th, the Clean Vegan Cookbook from Salem, Massachusetts-based Page Street Publishing Company will hit bookstores. Ackerberg began writing the cookbook in October of 2021 and submitted her manuscript in June 2022. Ackerberg said she believes in a no-shame approach to vegan. She puts a positive spin on plant-based meals without heavy chatter about diet culture. Her social media is scattered with healthy alternatives to meat-friendly foods. A lot of documentaries are shame-based and fear-mongering, Ackerberg said. It's good to educate yourself, but no one wants to see that. Ackerberg said that vegan naysayers should consider watching The Game Changers, an empowering film that is executive produced by six Hollywood heavyweights such as Arnold Schwarzenegger and sports legends like Novak Djokovic, about high-performing athletes who have embraced plant-based diets. While vegans are often criticized for being extreme, she portrays veganism as just a different way of eating. She encourages people to try a plant-based diet or find vegan alternatives to meat-focused diets. People will always apologize to me if they are eating meat, and I don't care what other people do, Ackerberg said. It's just that you can have positive impact on your health when you choose to consume plants. She said it is important for influencers and food bloggers to be kind and inclusive to people during their food journey. Her goal is to simply see folks lead healthy lives, she said. My perspective on it is vegans get a bad rap for being kind of extreme, but I think that I take the approach that I am accepting and excited for how much people can enjoy food when they prioritize plants, Ackerberg said. The clean vegan cookbook features recipes for 60 plant-based dishes and is available at bookstores and online at jackfruitful.com. Customers can purchase the clean vegan book cookbook locally at Eden, Des Moines Mercantile, Campbell's Nutrition, Storyhouse Book Pub, Beaverdale Books, Allspy Culinarium, and Kitchen Collage of Des Moines. Couple gets probation over poaching. An Ankeny couple famous for their hunting videos on YouTube have been sentenced to probation in federal court after pleading guilty to conspiring to break a federal wildlife protection law. Josh Balmer, 32, and Sarah Balmer, 33, were among dozens of defendants charged in a poaching case after they went on hunting tours guided by Broken Arrow, Nebraska-based Hidden Hills Outfitters between September 10, 2015 and November 6, 2017. An indictment said Hidden Hills owner Jacob Hooftley guided 118 clients from 21 states on hunts that primarily used illegal bait traps to attract white-tailed deer. At least 
36 defendants, including the Bomars, were charged in the case, according to the U.S. Department of Justice. The Bomars pleaded guilty to one count each of conspiring to break the Lacey Act, which prohibits selling, receiving, or acquiring wildlife in interstate commerce, taken in violation of state or federal wildlife laws. They also entered a guilty plea on behalf of their business, Bomar Hunting, to one count of conspiracy. On Thursday, a federal judge re- sentenced them each to serve three years of probation. The Bomars are required to pay $13,000 in restitution to the Nebraska Game and Parks Commission and a $25,000 fine to the Lacey Act reward account. They also must forfeit $44,000 worth of property and are barred from hunting in Nebraska. Josh Baumar played football for Heidelberg University in Springfield, Ohio. He and his future wife, Sarah, met in 2014 while participating in a bodybuilding competition, according to the website of Baumar Nutrition, an Ankeny-based supplement company they own. They are avid hunters who have posted dozens of videos on fitness and hunting on YouTube and social media. They also sell archery equipment under the name Baumar Archery. During September 10, 2015 and November 6, 2017, Josh and Sarah Bomart hunted deer in three central Nebraska counties by attracting animals with bait traps, according to an indictment in U.S. District Court for the District of Nebraska. Josh Bomart hunted for trophy deer known as Goalpost, Superman, and Head Turner. They filmed the expeditions and posted videos to their YouTube and social media accounts, according to the indictment. Sarah Bomar hunted deer and turkeys in a baited area on November 1, 2016, without a valid permit, according to the indictment. As part of a plea agreement, authorities dropped four charges relating to hunting in baited areas. The Lacey Act could be easy to break, said the couple's attorney, Klein Preston. If people break state wildlife rules or regulations and then take plants or animals across state lines, it triggers federal prosecution under the Lacey Act, he said. It's so easy for something that under the state law would be a lowest level criminal offense. The equivalent of a speeding ticket can become a federal case with huge penalties, he said. This is not the first time Josh Bomar has found himself at the center of controversy over his business ventures and online content. In 2016, Bomar, who lived in Ohio at that time, baited a trap in the Canadian woods and then impaled a bear with a long spear that had a camera attached to it, according to Reuters. The video went viral in Canada and outraged some residents, hunting groups, and animal rights activists. Bomar was never charged because a belcher did not ban spear hunting at the time. In February of 2018, the province banned spear hunting because of the video, according to Canadian news outlet Global News. Bomar told Reuters at the time that the killing was ethical, adding, No one cares more about these animals than us hunters. In October of 2021, consumers sued Bomar Nutrition, saying laboratory testing proved some of its products had 10% to 67% fewer grams of protein than advertised, according to the Iowa Capital Dispatch. Some of those claims were dismissed in March, according to the Capital Dispatch, but the case continues. Bomar also is facing charges of reckless use of a firearm or explosive in Clark County over a controlled burn that got out of control on April 10th last year. Bomar started the fire on his property despite extremely strong winds and dry conditions. According to a lawsuit filed October 18th by Brian and Susan Kreitz, who live in Waukee and own land that neighbors Bomar's, the fire spread to the Kreitz land and burned down a cabin. The criminal case is set to go to trial in April. 
Three days after the first fire got of ha out of hand, Bomar posted a video on YouTube depicting him accidentally lighting his pickup truck on fire after starting another controlled burn. U.S. or no, China buying U.S. farmland at alarming rate, citing growing concern about Chinese investment in U.S. agriculture. Iowa Republican U.S. Representative Ashley Hinson announced a renewed push to more closely monitor foreign ownership of farmland across the country. The U.S. Department of Agriculture is charged with monitoring foreign investment in farmland under the 1978 Agriculture Foreign Investment Disclosure Act. The law requires all foreign holders of agriculture land to report those holdings to the USDA. Each year, the USDA's Farm Service Agency releases that information in an annual report. However, the agency largely relies on volunteer reporting, according to a report by Investigate Midwest. An investigation by the independent nonprofit newsroom found significant gaps in the USDA database detailing all the land in the annual report. Investigate Midwest found more than 3.1 million acres without an owner listed. Its investigation also found many parcels listed with no, were no longer controlled by the owner in the database. It was unclear if the land was removed from the database after it was sold or a lease was terminated. Hinson co-sponsored a bill led by Republican representatives Elise Stefanak of New York and Rick Cawford of Arkansas to increase oversight of these acquisitions and require the Secretary of Agriculture to publicly disclose all new and existing Agriculture Foreign Investment Disclosure Act reports online. The bill also would expand the scope of reporting to include security interests and land leases of any period, including idle agricultural land and all interest acquired, transferred, or held by a foreign person. Hinson said the legislation would increase transparency for foreign land acquisition and help U.S. officials better understand the threat posed by Chinese efforts to control U.S. farmland. It's hugely concerning to us, Hinson said during a conference call. We, we are looking at what mechanisms we can put in place to make sure we are able to adequately track who is buying that, and make sure we are ensuring that the Chinese Communist Party is not able to purchase that land. According to the USDA, Chinese ownership of U.S. farmland increased from $81 million in 2010 to $1.8 billion in 2020, and the reports have shown that Chinese investors are buying farmland near military bases and other critical U.S. infrastructure. As of December 2020, Chinese investors owned 352,140 acres, just less than 1% of all foreign land, farmland, according to the USDA. That's up from 13,720 acres owned by Chinese investors in 2010, but pales in comparison to Canadian investors who own 32% or 12.4 million acres of all land in the United States and Netherlands buyers which owns 13% or 4.9 million acres. In all, foreign investors owned about 37.6 million acres of land worth about $67.6 .6 and equal to almost 3% of all U.S. farmland. That is an area slightly larger than the state of Iowa. Texas had the largest amount of foreign-held U.S. agriculture land with more than 4.7 million acres. Foreign investors held about 550,000 acres or roughly 1.8% of all Iowa farmland. Iowa is among at least a dozen states that have limits on foreign ownership. 
allowing Chinese investors to strengthen their presence and control over U.S. food production poses a national security risk, Hansen said. We don't want to completely block international land ownership, she said. That's not what we want to see happen. We have a lot of international investment in Iowa in our district, but we need to be very clear. The Chinese Communist Party is the greatest threat to this country, and we cannot allow them to buy another acre, not another acre by the CCP. The U.S. House last year unanimously passed by voice vote an amendment to an appropriations bill that would require the USDA to take actions to prohibit the purchase of agricultural land by companies owned in full or in part by China, Russia, Iran, or North Korea. Similar provisions were not taken up in the Senate. The debate over farm ownership has intensified as Chinese firms over the past decade have purchased major agribusinesses like pork processing, giant Smithfield Foods. It also comes amid broader efforts by Congress and the Biden administration to curb the United States' reliance on China in key industries critical to the nation's supply chain. The issue has been bipartisan, with advocates for stricter monitoring in the U.S. Senate, including Democrats John Tester of Montana, Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts, and Republican Chuck Grassley of Iowa. China is one of Iowa's largest trading partners, a relationship forged and strengthened by former Iowa Republican Governors Robert Ray and Terry Branstad. Branstad served as U.S. Ambassador to China under former President Donald Trump. The U.S. House this week also voted to establish a select committee to assess the myriad military, economic, and technological challenges posed by China. Taking proper action against China is long overdue, Hinson said of that country's posturing against Taiwan, to buying up U.S. farmland at an alarming rate, to its theft of U.S. intellectual property and human rights abuses against Uyghurs, a mainly Muslim ethnic minority. I believe we have been asleep at the wheel, she said, but I am confident we will be able to take meaningful action to com combat communist China, not as Republicans or Democrats, but as Americans. You are listening to the reading of the Sioux City Journal for Tuesday, January 17th on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. There are no obituaries in today's paper. Right to repair advocates concerned agreement with John Deere isn't enough. Farmers have won the right to repair with John Deere, which some advocates are calling more of a step in the right direction than a solution. The American Farm Bureau and John Deere announced on Sunday a memorandum of understanding that allows farmers to choose where their equipment is repaired or to repair it themselves. Previously, only authorized dealers could repair Deere equipment. Kevin O'Reilly, director for the Right to Repair campaign with the Illinois Public Interest Research Group, said a memorandum of understanding is not enough. All John Deere has to do is provide a 30-day notice and they can pull out of this deal, he said. The memorandum of understanding is not legally binding. For the past several years, farmers have been fighting for legislation that will protect their right to repair. As Deere has been a vocal opponent, O'Reilly said he was left feeling skeptical. When I first saw it, my instinct was not to jump for joy, he said. This job is not done. We need to pass right-to-repair bills to make sure farmers have what they need to fix their tractors. According to the memo, equipment owners will now have an electronic access on fair and reasonable terms to manufacturers' tools, specialty tools, software, and documentation.
According to a news release from the Farm Bureau, the agreement formalizes farmers' access to diagnostic and repair codes, as well as manuals, operator parts and service, and product guides. It's a little difficult to say what's coming, but we'll know pretty quickly, said Nathan Proctor with the Public Interest Research Group. As Senior Director for Right to Repair Campaign, Proctor maintains a keen interest. Because the Memorandum of Understanding goes into effect immediately, he said the public will know soon what specific tools farmers can access. John Deere has long held that they support the right to repair with certain exceptions, he said. Those exceptions include ignition systems, resetting immobilizers, and embedded software for the programming and instruction of the equipment. At a shareholder meeting in February of 2022, Deere CEO John C. May was asked about right-to-repair efforts. He said Deere supports customers' right to safely maintain, diagnose, and repair equipment, but not for the idea that customers should be able to change embedded software. One reason Deere held so tightly to the right-to-repair fight, Proctor said, was for safety reasons. Specifically, when it comes to the immobilizer, which is triggered when something like low fluid levels or a transmission issue is detected. The immobilizer then sets the equipment into limp mode, which means it can only go about 10 miles an hour until it's reset. Before the Memorandum of Understanding was signed, only our dealer could reset this. To me, the thing that was really encouraging was there was a specific promise that provides the ability to reset immobilizer codes, he said. But concern remains that there will be specific problems that only a dealer can provide a solution for. We are not fully convinced that farmers will be able to make 100% of repairs away from a dealership, O'Reilly said. With a bill, there would be a legal system to determine what are fair and reasonable terms. With the Memorandum of Understanding, farmers will have to rely on deer to set the prices. But Proctor said farmers are usually not as worried about the cost of their repair as they are the downtime. As with many companies, John Deere has technician jobs open across the country. A search on Indeed for John Deere technician produced results from Maryland to Kansas to Texas to North Carolina. If wait times for repairs at a dealership is stretching into weeks, that can be detrimental for farmers who need to get into the fields. But at the same time, Deere didn't let independent mechanics have access, Proctor said. That six weeks could be the loss of your entire operation. They need to have another choice. Another red flag that comes from the Memorandum of Understanding is the cost. Proctor said the competition between dealerships, independent mechanics, and farmers will inevitably lower repair costs because there are more options. But the Memorandum of Understanding does not outline what the cost of the tools will be. For a lot of farming operations, that will be nothing. For others, that will be pretty important, he said. O'Reilly added that the language surrounding independent repair was concerning to him. The way this agreement is written, it seems like there are some hopes, hoops to jump through to make sure independent mechanics can get access to tools, he said. The memorandum of understanding outlines that independent mechanics will have to rely on consent from the farmer to access those specific tools. O'Reilly is concerned mechanics will not be able to outright purchase the equipment with all already having a customer lined up. How can you have a business if every time you have to do the thing that makes you money, you have to call the manufacturer to get authorization, he's asked. For farmers who will try to go it on their own, there is concern too. Proctor cited a case of a farmer in Montana who spent nearly $8,000 on a new laptop and other diagnostic equipment. Even after dropping that much, he was unable to make the changes he needed. Another red flag. If these tools are going to be available, the price is important. But what won't you be able to do, he asked. I'm still worried that Deer is holding all the cards.
Lamar's Tea House offers fancy and fun group parties. When Barb Frick was growing up in Coleman, South Dakota, the farmer's wives would get all dressed up in their suits and heels, pull on their formal gloves, don hats, and heads, head off to ladies' aid. Although coffee rather than tea was served at the women's society meetings, Frick said these gatherings gave her her very first taste of a tea party at age five. I was in kindergarten and I didn't have school that day, so Mom had to bring me along to Ladies' Aid, she recalled, as she stood in her kitchen at Friendship Tea House. An assortment of vintage floral teacups hung from the hooks in a wooden shelving unit nearby. I just sat mesmerized by all these farm's wives. They were all decked out, including my mother. Today, Frick is hosting reservations only, old-fashioned tea parties in a former Lamar's flower shop at 139 Fifth Avenue Southwest. She opened the tea house last February with her husband, Bob. Frick serves up homemade finger sandwiches, soups, deviled eggs, scones with Devonshire cream, cheesecake, and more on fine china, alongside pots of loose-leaf tea in an eclectically decorated space that has a Victorian-esque feel. Burgundy and green linens cover the tables, which are surrounded by various antiques. Friendship Tea House offers black, oolong, green, white, and caffeine-free herbal teas in a variety of flavors. Coffee is available upon request. Grandma's Caramel Butterscotch is a favorite black tea with guests, who can top their heads with one of Frick's more than 150 fancy hats and wrap brightly colored feathered boas around their necks. Boys and men need not fret. Frick has accessories available for them, too. Bob Frick's at Friendship Tea House isn't your typical tea house or tea room, as those places are often jam-packed with people. Frick's caters to the unique needs of each group. We don't really want the place chock full of people. It's, then it's just like a commercial restaurant trying to run people through, said Bob Frick, who noted, however, that like a restaurant, the tea house is licensed by the Iowa Department of Inspections and Appeals. Everyone who visits the tea house is encouraged to pour yourself a memory. The motto is printed on the Frick's business cards. It is also scrawled on a chalkboard, which is tucked into one of the tea house's many nooks between old family photos and flower sack aprons. Tea parties are about lifting the spirit, lifting your soul through the sisterhood of girlfriends just talking about life, Bob Frick said. I want to create an atmosphere where they feel valued and loved. A decade ago, Barb Frick was going through a hard time in her life. She was living in New Mexico where her husband had been deployed to work with the United States Border Patrol. Bob Frick, a Minnesota native, loved the climate down there, so the couple ended up staying in the land of enchantment beyond his military deployment. I was really needing some more connection and interaction with women, said Barb, a farmer kindergarten teacher who comes from a big family. Her mom is the oldest of 12 children. Every weekend for me was family. Well, I was just lonely down there and isolated. I just kind of got myself in a way that I needed to meet people and make friends. It was harder because we weren't from there. When a discouraged Frick returned to Sioux Falls, South Dakota to visit family, her mother turned to her and asked, What do you want to do with the rest of your life? Frick picked up a copy of the local newspaper and was immediately drawn to a photograph of a little girl wearing a hat and gloves and sipping tea. I said, that's what I want to do. I want to do tea parties and create these awesome memories for people and expose little girls to this lovely old tradition, she recalled. 
That's when Frick started collecting vintage wares for her tea parties from thrift shops and antique shops. She has amassed more than 120 teacups. In the beginning, I didn't know my taste. I just bought everything, she said. Now I know I love made in England. So whenever I see something made in England, I will snatch it up if I don't have something like it. The Fricks opened their first tea house in a charming 1930 home in New Mexico in 2017. All the house was quaint. Barb Frick said she loved the original wood floors and corner hutch. The tea house was very popular down there. It gave the military wives and retirees something awesome to do, she said. After the global COVID-19 pandemic shuttered the tea house, the couple decided it was time to move back to South Dakota. Unfortunately, the tight real estate market in 2020 made it difficult for them to find a place to relocate the tea house. We couldn't find any place. You couldn't buy a house. You couldn't buy a business. It just wasn't happening, Barb Frick said. Unsure of what to do, she prayed, telling God, it's in your hands. A few months later, her niece, who lives in Sioux Center, Iowa, was driving through Lamar's when she saw a for sale sign posted outside Lamar's flower house. She snapped a picture, sent it to me in New Mexico, and said, Aunt Barb, would this make a cute tea house? The rest is history, said Frick, who now lives with her husband in a four-bedroom home in the back of the tea house. It takes a significant amount of time to arrange a quality tea party, according to Barb Frick. She might spend three hours preparing specific food for a party. Tables are elegantly set the night before patrons arrive. For a birthday party, Frick said she often decorates with the birthday girl's favorite color. It takes a lot of time to do it well and to do it right with excellence, she said. Everybody who walks in that door, I want them to feel that, oh my gosh, this place is beautiful, and that I took the care and the time to do something beautiful for them. After introductions, Frick takes a tea order. Each party selects two pots of hot tea, which she said is a comfort food with many medicinal properties. Ginger chai, for example, is said to boost immunity and support weight management, while white peach is said to protect against premature aging and boost mood. While Frick is making the tea, patrons are busy donning wigs, necklaces, hats, and other accessories. Bob Frick noted that the teas are very particular when it comes to brewing temperature and steeping time. Black teas, for example, require three to five minutes at full boil, while white teas need to two to three minutes at 175 to 180 degrees. After customers return to their tables, Barb Frick pours the tea and demonstrates how to properly stir it with a small stirring spoon after adding a lump of sugar or a dollop of cream. Then she begins to bring out the food. The teacup is like a clock, six o'clock and twelve o'clock, back and forth, gentle, without clinking. Frick instructed. Clinking your cup with the metal can actually crack your teacup. The Fricks enjoy visiting with their customers, while they, which they say is truly why they operate the tea house. During tea parties, which are generally two hours long, the conversation just flows. While the adults talk, the children play with the dollhouse, talk on rotary dial phones, and stuff fake money into retro-looking purses. Barb Frick just beams when she thinks of the grandmothers and granddaughters who have walked through the tea house doors. The granddaughters might dress up grandma and put a wig on her. It's really a place to play and have fun, she said. I call it fancy and fun, because everybody wants a fancy tea party, of course, but you don't want a fancy, stuffy one. If you go, it's called Friendship Tea House. It's at 139 Fifth Avenue Southwest in Lamars. 
and it's open for tea parties by reservation only. Friendship Tea House accommodates a variety of events, including family gatherings, bridal and baby showers, dress-up parties for kids, business meetings, holiday parties, and play dates with grandma. Pick a date and time, know your party size, review menu options at friendshipteahouse.com, and then call Barb Frick at 712-501-4088 to confirm availability. We now move to a sports story about the Iowa Hawkeyes. New look Hawkeyes turn page to 23. With the start of spring semester classes at Iowa on Tuesday, the Iowa football program turns the page to 2023. The Hawkeyes will begin the new year with a roster that has undergone multiple changes in the past two months, a byproduct of transfer portal opportunities that brought players to Iowa and sent others elsewhere searching for new opportunities. The movement is a reflection of the current era in college football, something Coach Kirk Ferentz recognized as movement was beginning to take place. Our roster is in a process of shifting, probably like every college football program in America right now, Ferentz said last month, prior to Iowa wrapping up an 8-5 season with a shutout of Kentucky in the Transperfect Music Bowl. These are uncharted times, certainly, with some of the new things that are going on in college football and really were no different. And as is the case with recruiting, the Iowa Hawkeyes have had their chair of hits and misses in the players they have courted in the transfer portal. Joining Iowa for the spring semester will be quarterbacks Cade McNamara and Deacon Hill, transfers from Michigan and Wisconsin, respectively. Tight end Eric All followed McNamara, the starter on the Wolverines' 2023 Big Ten Championship team, followed McNamara to Iowa City. Working to address needs, the Hawkeyes have also added players from other divisions. Wide receiver Seth Anderson, the offensive freshman of the year in the FCS-level Big South Conference last season, and Dejan Parker, an offensive lineman who started for NCAA Division II Saginaw Valley State, are among players enrolled at Iowa this spring. Two preferred walk-ons will join the five scholarship transfers at Iowa as well. Hayden Large, a tight end who caught 62 passes for 950 yards and 12 touchdowns while playing NAIA football for three seasons at Dort. And defensive end Jackson Filer, named the National Junior College Defensive Player of the Year last fall for Iowa Western, began classes and winter workouts at Iowa this week. Two players Iowa signed in its 2023 recruiting class in December, defensive lineman Ontario Thompson, a Dubuque native who played at Iowa Western, and Texas running back Tara Washington Jr. are enrolled at Iowa for the spring semester. While those nine players will join Iowa this week, the Hawkeyes will begin their winter work without 10 players who entered the transfer portal in the past two months. Three have moved to other Power 5 programs. Receivers Arlen Bruce and Keegan Johnson have left for Oklahoma State and Kansas State, respectively, and linebacker Justin Jacobs has taken his game to Oregon. Running back Gavin Williams and defensive back Dallas Gradith found homes with Mid-American Conference programs, Williams at Northern Illinois and Gradith at Kent State. Cornerback Reggie Bracey will remain in the FBS level at Troy, while reserve offensive lineman Josh Bokewell has transferred to Northern Iowa. Three other Hawkeyes who entered the portal, quarterbacks Alex Padilla and Carson May, and defensive back Terry Roberts, have not yet finalized future plans. We'll now move to Dear Abby. Dear Abby, 
Thirty years ago, I had an affair with Roger, a married man. We worked together and fell in love. At the time, Roger was married with three children. My husband and I were separated, and I had one son. The 15-year age gap between us didn't matter to me. I admired him. Roger was a soft-spoken, intelligent, and a gentleman. He was a, of Christian faith, so when he decided to divorce his wife, his partners held an intervention and bought out his equity in the company, which forced him to move out of state. Roger was a great person and struggled with the thought of leaving his family. I understood and we parted ways. I kept informed about him as much as possible over the years, but never contacted him and we lived in different states. When he left, I was pregnant, but I didn't tell him because so much was going on and I didn't want to, the baby to be a tool. I had a son, reconciled with my husband, and never told a soul. Eight years after that, my husband and I divorced. Although I tried, I never found the courage to reach out to Roger. Five years ago, I visited the state where he lived, even went to his office, but did not reach out. I recently had several dreams about him and could not stop thinking of him. They seemed so real. I looked Roger up online and found out he died a year ago. I am devastated and feel guilty for not giving my son the opportunity to know his father. Roger has other children. At this point, should I let them know or should I just leave everything alone? My biggest fear is causing pain to his wife. She is a good person and does not deserve this. Signed, Holding Many Secrets. And the response. What is to be gained by making an announcement at this late date? As you stated, it won't provide your son the opportunity to know his father, and receiving shocking news at this point will only cause Roger's widow pain. However, I would do another internet search to see if you can find out what killed Roger. If it's something that could be passed down to your son, warn him. Otherwise, I'm voting for leaving everything alone. Dear Abby, over the past two years, a friend I have felt very close to over the years has gone downhill. Nancy thinks her neighbors have placed listening devices in her apartment, have entered her place illegally and taken things, and are in general malevolent. I have my own troubles and burdens in my life, and this change in her leaves me feeling frightened, powerless, and overwhelmed. I have stepped back, but a mutual friend tells me Nancy feels abandoned and betrayed by me. I'm afraid if I reach out, I will be sorry. But on the other hand, I have never have said goodbye. Nancy has a therapist now, and I lift her up in prayer a lot. What do you suggest I do, if anything? Failed friend in California. And the response. Your prayers have been answered. Nancy is now in the care of a therapist and may improve. If the only reason you would be contacting her is to say goodbye, I think it would be cruel. If you would like to check in from time to time, ask how she's doing, and offer some warmth and encouragement, then give her a call. And that does it for today's reading of the Sioux City Journal for Tuesday, January 17th. I'm Dagna, your reader. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And thank you for listening.
From the Bureau of Economic Geology, this is Earth Date. Since the dawn of humankind, people have used caves to explore, hold religious ceremonies, create art, or avoid the dangers of weather and predators. Partly because of that, they continue to fascinate scientists today. To create a cave, Mother Nature needs three things. Water, rock that can be dissolved by it, and lots of time. Rainwater, as it falls through the atmosphere, picks up carbon from CO2 to become a weak carbonic acid. By the time it hits Earth, it's about as acidic as coffee. As it percolates through the soil, it picks up more carbon from decaying plants, becoming a slightly stronger acid. If the rock below the soil is limestone, gypsum, or dolomite, the water can dissolve along tiny cracks. Over many thousands of years, the cracks become channels, then tunnels, and could eventually become caverns. Water might also mix with hydrogen sulfide gas seeping up from natural oil and gas deposits to form sulfuric acid, which can also dissolve the rock. Protected from daily and seasonal changes on the surface, caves can maintain a stable temperature and humidity. In these delicate environments, the remains of ancient animals and humans, which could have quickly decayed on the surface, have been preserved for millennia. Deeper, more isolated caves have preserved bacteria and microbes undisturbed for millions of years. These qualities make caves important sites for researchers, natural time capsules. There's probably an amazing cave near you, so take a trip and get to know your Earth. I'm Scott Tinker, dissolving mysteries on Earth Date. Earth Date is produced by the Bureau of Economic Geology at the University of Texas at Austin, with support from Schlumberger, helping oil and gas companies increase production and efficiency while lowering environmental impact. You can hear more EarthDate stories at earthdate.org.